We're beginning the season of Advent. If you're familiar with church, maybe you know what Advent means. But so we're all on the same page. Advent is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So this is why we call the Christmas season Advent, because a notable person arrived. The Advent season, typically we focus on the individual story of Jesus' birth. The angel appears to Mary. The angel appears to Joseph, uh, born in Bethlehem, shepherds, wise men. But Advent is a part of a much bigger story. It is a pivotal moment in the long arc of God's redemptive plan. I don't know if you're familiar with the artistic term uh, photo mosaic. I brought an example with me this morning. A photo mosaic is a picture that's made up of uh, uh, thousands or hundreds or sometimes even millions of smaller pictures. It's, we zoom in so you can see a little bit closer that this American flag is made up of individual pictures. And this is exactly what happens in the season of Advent. It's a bunch of smaller stories, but those smaller stories combine with the long story that God has been telling and God is writing from creation through Jesus's birth, even into this moment. And we see that in the pages of Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell upon him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the uh, wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. For verse, start, verse five starts, 
in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Herod is an important person in this Advent season. He was at the same time both capable of great things, but also incredibly evil things. He was a great builder. He, in fact, built the temple in Jerusalem there in the first century. It was uh, unrivaled on planet Earth at the time. He was uh, a, a leader who helped with economic development. But at the same time, he was ruthlessly evil. He was very insecure and had a very dark heart, which is a very unrighteous combination. I mean, we just look at this slide of his family tree. He had a handful of sons. Antipater uh, was killed by Herod uh, for a potential assassination plot. So you can imagine your family at Thanksgiving. Imagine these guys at Thanksgiving. He had another son named Alexander, and he killed Alexander. He had another son named Philip I. Not too creative with names because later on there's a Philip II. Uh, Philip I, he did not rule. Uh, The thing that we know about him is he actually lost his wife to one of his brothers. Uh, Another son was named Archelaus. We do read about Archelaus in the scripture. He ruled Judea and Samaria. He was ruthless just like his father. In fact, he was so vindictive and terrible as a leader. The Roman Empire removed him from his position. There, There was Herod Antipas who ruled in Galilee, he's the one who killed John the Baptist and he is the one who stole Philip I's wife. Uh, Philip II, he ruled in the far north region of Palestine. And just to finish off the list, uh, Aristobulus, he was also killed by his father. So this is uh, who Herod is. He uh, killed one of his wives. He's just a murderous, murderous man. And this is how Luke starts his story. In the days of King Herod, king of Judea. It's the big picture. This is what's going on on planet earth at the time. This is the next part of the big arc of God's redemptive history. You can see this slide next to me. Here is the big picture. Uh, Commonly, what we refer to as a story of the Old Testament starts with creation. You remember Adam and Eve. And from creation, we move immediately to Genesis chapter three to the fall. Adam and Eve eat that fruit that was forbidden to them and they're removed from the Garden of Eden. All of the consequences of sin fall on them and we've been inheriting it ever since. Then there's a period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then there's a period of the Exodus where God's people find themselves as slaves in Egypt for generations. They cry out to God, God rescue us from this slavery. He sends Moses, his spokesman. Moses speaks to Pharaoh And through plagues and signs and wonders, Pharaoh lets God's people go. They move out into the wilderness. God is living among them in a tent, a tabernacle, where his presence can be seen in fire and in smoke. Eventually, they land in the land of promise. And they're ruled by judges. Eventually, they look around at their neighbors and say, well, all of our neighbors have kings. They cry out to God for a king and God says, this is not a good idea. I'll be your king. But they say, no, 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 we want a king just like everyone else. And so God gives them Saul and then David and then Solomon. And Solomon's sons, who were kings after him, were wicked and evil and led God's people into idolatry, worshiping the false gods of their neighbors. God would send prophets, as we say often, warning the people of Israel, stay faithful to God, stay faithful to God, worship him only. But they refused and eventually exile happened. 
Nations of Assyria and Babylon come from the north and south, take over the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, take off many people back to Babylon, where they live in gener- for generations. And eventually they're allowed, allowed to return back into Israel, but there's a question mark. Because it transitioned from Babylon being in charge of them to the Persians being in charge of them. And from the Persians, there was a brief period of uh, self-governance. But after them, it was the Greeks. And after that, the Romans. And so for the people of Israel living in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was a question mark about what God was going to do next. Even though they had been allowed to return back to Israel, it still didn't feel like God had turned the page in their story. A big question mark, dot, dot, dot. What's going to happen next? This is the big picture. And how does God answer the big picture question of what is next? By zooming in on a small picture. That's why it says in the next phrase, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. The priesthood of Israel was made up of 24 divisions, including the house of Abijah. This is the way that God works. He accomplishes the big picture with the combination of many small pictures. This man, Zechariah and his family were the answer to this big question, what happens next? So we think about what a question might look like in our day. In Zechariah's, it was, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, for us, it would be in the days of Apple, Google, Amazon, Obama's, Trump's, and Mayor Sylvester Turner, there was a blank named blank. It was a priest named Zachariah, but for us, it's an oil man named your name, a stay-at-home mom named your name, a, a salesman, a saleswoman, a HR specialist. This is what it would look like for us in the days of big picture. God zooms in. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And it says next in verse 5. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. It says she was barren. There would have been a stigma, a shame attached to it. Now we're projecting, but I believe there was a disappointment there. I believe that we're right in projecting this on them because of the way this story ends With her words in verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This was a label. This had been something that we know from the story that they had been praying about. This has been something they have been longing for, but they were disappointed. They carried this reproach. They carried this shame. And yet, according to verse six, they were righteous and walked blamelessly concerning all of God's commandments and statutes, which is rare. It is rare to be righteous and disappointed. It is common to be righteous or disappointed. But there's a difference. Anyone can be righteous or disappointed. And we see that in our own lives. 
There's something that we're longing for. And while there's hope in us, while there's expectation in us, there's lots of joy and there's lots of faithfulness. But when that thing does not come to pass, our faithfulness and our joy decreases. We become righteous or disappointed. That's the choice. I can be disappointed in God or I can be righteous before God. But it's very rare for someone like Zachariah and Elizabeth to be both. I'm disappointed. The thing that I wanted, the thing that I needed, the thing that I was praying for, it did not come to pass or it has not come to pass yet. I am disappointed and yet I'm righteous. And I walk blamelessly concerning all of God's laws and statutes. This is how we know that we're growing in our faith. This is how we know that we're coming to spiritual maturity, that we can be righteous and disappointed. Because we know from watching our own children, those of us who have children or your nieces and nephews, anyone can be righteous or disappointed. It's like we have a daughter, she's one, her name is Willa, and people ask us, is Willa a good baby? And we turn our head and go, well, uh, it depends. If she has what she wants immediately when she wants it, there is not a better baby on planet Earth. She is happy and she is content. But the moment that she wants something and does not have that thing in her hands, I don't know if she's the good baby. She's sweet and we love her, but I don't know if I would use the word good. In fact, she does this thing now where when she wants something and you're not giving it to her, she holds her hands open like this and she flexes her face and goes, And if you have something to put in her hands when she goes, then she's good. But if you don't, then you can just imagine what that would be like listening to that nonstop. Because we know that sign of maturity is that we can still hold ourselves together even if we don't have that thing in our hands that we want. And Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were like that. They were open-handed before God and they had very much wanted something very special and close to their hearts. This is a serious thing to want children and not be able to have children. It is a wound in their heart. This is a precious thing. And God had not placed it there yet. And yet they were still able to walk righteous, righteously and blameless. And it says in verse eight, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. There were 24 divisions of the priesthood and they each served twice a year. So two times a year, no matter where you lived, if you were in that lineage, if you were of the priesthood of Abijah or one of the other divisions, when it was your turn, your division's turn, you would make that trek to Jerusalem and you would stay in the city for a period of time and your your tribe, your division would be on call to do the work of the temple. Now there were 
most likely 18,000 priests in the division of Abijah. That's why it was necessary and essential to cast lots. There were not 18,000 jobs in that one or two week window that they were in Jerusalem taking their turn. And so most priests would never get the opportunity to actually go into what they called the holy place to minister before God in these ceremonies. But Zechariah was chosen by lot, by casting lot, by chance, by random drawing, essentially. Inside the holy place, there were three things. There was the altar of incense, which is the job that fell to Zechariah. There was uh, the the fire um, on a lampstand that continually was lit before God. And the third thing was a table that had ceremonial bread on it consistently before God. And Zechariah's job was the incense. Now the incense was offered twice a day. Scholars believe that it happened at dawn and dusk. And it says that there was a large crowd waiting outside. And so we believe that probably Zechariah was chosen for the latter time at dusk when there would have been a bigger crowd there. So there's a lampstand, there's a table with bread, there's an altar of incense, and in this situation, there was an angel. And it says in verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now this is talking about John the Baptist who's the forerunner of Jesus and his ministry is getting ready to be described. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is a a thing that was in the Old Testament. It was called a Nazarite vow. This is a version of it. Somebody dedicated to God for God's purpose, wouldn't drink wine or alcohol. There were a few other requirements. We see this from Judges chapter 13 and Numbers chapter six. And John is going to take on that kind of vow. It says in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Essentially, he's going to prepare the soil so Jesus can come and the people will be ready. It says in verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced In years, Zechariah says uh, to the angel what many of us have said to God before. I will do this, but I need a sign. I hear what you're saying, and I sort of believe that you are the one saying it, but I got a lot of voices going on in the inside, and I would like some confirmation that this really is you and not just bad turkey that I ate on Thanksgiving or not just a period of indigestion or I'm not just filled with anxiety or I'm not just trying to punish myself for a bad decision. I want to know for sure that this is you, so God, give me a sign. How many of us have prayed, God, I'm going to do this thing. I believe that you're telling me to do this. I'm going to do this thing. If you don't want me to do this thing, stop me right now before I do it. That's what Zechariah is saying. It says in verse 13, for your prayer has been heard. It was common for priests to offer a prayer as they would go to light the incense. There's three possible options 
a prayer that Zechariah was playing, praying based on Gabriel's word to him. The first one is that when he went to light the incense, he prayed for himself and for Elizabeth. God, I'm lighting this. This is a holy moment. Most people don't get the opportunity to stand in this holy place. And as I light this, I'm gonna pray that you would give us a son or a daughter, that you would give us a child. That's option number one. Option number two is that Gabriel's word to him, for your prayer has been heard, is a response to all the prayers that Zachariah and Elizabeth had prayed concerning that child in their lifetime. Option number three is that Zechariah prayed probably what he was supposed to. God, can you bring salvation to Israel? Essentially, God, will you turn the chapter on this epic story that you are writing? Can you remove us from exile, which started out as exile to Babylon, but now it's exile to the Roman Empire? God, can you turn this page of our story? Can you bring salvation to Israel? So these are the three possible options based on the story that we have in front of us. So that means three things happened and yet Zechariah needs a sign. So it means that if he prayed for a child as he offered the incense, it was a faithless prayer. I mean, so you can imagine taking that holy moment, lighting the incense, God, would you give us a son or daughter? And then an angel is right there and says, hey, I'm an angel and you're gonna have a son, and here's the whole backstory, you probably wouldn't need a sign on top of the angel because you just prayed the prayer. So if he prayed the prayer as he's lighting the incense, it was a faithless prayer, which we do. How many times have we offered up a prayer to God and immediately we did not believe that he was gonna answer it? Just kind of a pull it out of my pocket, throw it against the wall, see if it sticks, probably won't stick. I feel obligated to pray, but I don't have any faith. I would guess if most of us are offering up prayers today, they would be faithless prayers. This is uh, something that I should be praying for. This is something that probably I need, but I don't know the chances that it's gonna happen are very, very small. If it was option number two, that God was responding to all the prayers that Elizabeth and Zechariah had prayed over the course of their marriage for a child, those had become forgotten prayers. You know those prayers? You're in a season and it's like, God, I need you. God, will you do this? God, I'm praying. I'm praying for this person. I'm praying for my dad. I'm praying, God, that you'll save him. I'm praying for my mom, that you'll just restore my relationship with her. God, I'm praying for my friend, that they're the prodigal. And I'm praying that they'll come to their senses and return back to you. God, I'm praying. I need a job. God, I'm praying for this. I'm praying for my son. I'm praying for my daughter. God, God, God. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you wait and you wait and you wait. And the longer you wait, the less you pray, and the less you pray, the less you pray, and eventually we forget that we even prayed those prayers, and then God brings an answer, but because we forgot, we don't credit him with an answer. We credit to happenstance, and aren't I so lucky, and what a surprise. Or option number three, that he prayed for the salvation of Israel, that he prayed that God would turn the page from exile into a new chapter. He wasn't open-minded 
that God might use him. You ever pray for Houston, Texas, but you assume that the answer is gonna be someone else? You ever pray that God might bring a revival to the people that you work with and you're hoping that some other Christian on your floor is gonna hear God's voice when God says you're the one to invite them to church and you're the one to speak up and say something and you're the one to be a prophetic voice among this dark place, but we're not open-minded that God might be the one, be using us to be the one. But we understand why. We understand why his faith was weak because of the facts. He says in verse 18, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now that's a good husband because he says, I'm old. I'm not saying she's old. She's not old. She's just got a number of years under her belt. These are the facts. I think in our souls, we want to, want to be a part of the miraculous. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the stories of the Bible and I think, you know, it would be really great if I, if I wasn't just reading these, I was experiencing these things. It'd be great if I just didn't read about in someone else's book that they prayed and something happened and everybody's mind was blown. I'd like to be the one to be the praying one or to be the recipient of the prayer where something miraculous happened. I think in most of us, that's in our souls. But that is not for the weak-willed. The people who experience miracles from God are not the weak-willed. They have a strong and disciplined faith. Because there is always a fight between what God has said and the facts as I see them. If you want to live an extraordinary life, a miraculous life, this will be your battleground. This is what God has said is possible. And this is the list of facts as I perceive them. I believe that God has said he can save my atheist cousin. But the facts as I see them are is this guy will never pick up a Bible. This guy will never come to church. This guy's reading all the atheist books. He is as hard of heart as anyone I've ever met. So yes, God has said this, but these are the facts. God has said it's possible that he'll bring me a woman I can love for the rest of my life, a man that I can love for the rest of my life. But here are the facts. The facts are I've not had a date in a long time. The facts are match.com does not work for me. Christian mingle is not bringing the mingle in my life. I don't know anyone. Uh, all the people I do know, I'm not interested in, only in a friend's way. And the guys who are into me, I'm not into. And the guys I'm into, they're not getting up the clue right now. And these are the facts as I see them. And if you want to live a miraculous life, this is the battleground between what God has said and what you perceive as the reality. But Gabriel says, verse 19. I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Gabriel says, I am the sign. You want a sign that God is going to affirm this word? Uh, How about an angel comes to you and appears to you and you can actually see it. That's a pretty good sign. But Gabriel goes on and said, well, here is the sign since you lacked faith. Your discipline for your lack of faith is gonna be a sign. You're not gonna be able to speak until the baby is born. 
and it says in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. The tradition says, this is just tradition. It says that outside the holy place, the people would pray. So as the priest is offering the incense in the temple, the people outside would pray these words. May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. But God was doing more than just accepting an offering of incense that day. He was accepting the offering of a righteous and blameless man. The offering of a whole life dedicated to the will of God. You know, many of us, we long for a a new season in our lives. A new task, a new responsibility, a new chapter. We want to move from single to married, married to children, employee to manager, tax bracket B to tax bracket A. We all want new seasons, new tasks. And when God does bring you that new task, just as he has done with Zechariah, let him find you faithful with the old task. Before, it was just Zechariah, a priest of the division of Abijah. That was his task. That was his calling before God. That was his season. And when it was time for God to bring a new season, a new responsibility, a new task, where did God find him? Being faithful in the current season. Taking his turn serving in the temple. Advent tells us that God's picture is made up of a combination of a bunch of smaller pictures. But I'm interested today, what is the big picture God is creating? If he's taking your story and my story and the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth and combining it with the story of Mary and the story of the shepherds and the story of the wise men and the story of Herod, and he's taking all of those and he's got a big picture, what is the big picture? I'm sure there are lots of ways that we could answer that, but let's stick to one that we find in these Advent stories. Luke chapter 2 verse 13, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem and outside of the village of Bethlehem, there are some shepherds keeping their flocks by night. And it says in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I don't know exactly what the big picture God is creating looks like, but I know this is in it. Glory to God in the highest. Why should you be faithful in your small picture today? You're zoomed in, your life contribution, because glory to God in the highest. Why should you keep being faithful in your marriage? Glory to God in the highest. Why should you keep being faithful and righteous in your singleness? Glory to God in the highest. Why should you keep being generous even though you're nervous about money? Glory to God in the highest. Why should you be righteous and disappointed? Because glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth to those whom his favor rests.
Let's pray. you take a second to pray and ask God God what's what's my next step of obedience what's my next step of faithfulness how do you want me to apply everything that we've read from your word today to that and obey that word so that you will have glory in highest. We ask this in Jesus' name.